Welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 45, The Raj. Today we're going to start a little mini-series within a mini-series. For the next three episodes, we'll be taking a look at the crown jewel of the British Empire, India. It is hard to overstate the importance of the subcontinent to its ruler. Practically every consideration made by the British, outside their home isles, had India factored into it somehow. India, after all, was for all practical purposes the home base of Britain away from Britain. But the role of India in these years gets lost or played down oftentimes in popular histories, focusing mostly on the greatest hits of the independence movement and the life of Gandhi, which, while perfectly valid, also leaves out the millions of Indians who served in the UK's imperial project and the wealth of the country that helped support its ruler. Without the advantages offered by India, the UK really wouldn't have had the global reach that it enjoyed. And it was India's centrality to the empire that also led the UK and its on-the-ground government in Delhi to act in such a heavy-handed manner to any perceived threat to their rule, and why enacting any significant change to the governance there required mass movements on scales unseen in any colonial empire. So, let's get started on what made India the imperial hub that it was, and what it took to rule such a gargantuan prize. The geographic scope of India set it apart from all the other British holdings. The country, by the time of our period, was organized into what was called the British Raj, with Raj meaning rule. It included not just modern India, but also Pakistan and Bangladesh. The colony of Burma, which today is called Myanmar, was also part of the Raj, though later in 1937 it was spun off into its own colony, as it had never been totally integrated into the greater unit. Nor did either the Indians or Burmese perceive themselves as sensible cohabitants in the same administrative unit, so I'll touch on Burma as part of a later episode. So this was a huge area, by itself the size of Europe minus the Russian parts. And its location was highly advantageous as well. To the north were the impassable Himalayas. Uh, to the east towards Burma, there were not just mountains, but horrific jungle. And to the west were deserts, more mountains in the Hindu Kush, and the graveyard of empires, Afghanistan. While the British were constantly paranoid about threats to India, there really wasn't a land empire capable of first overcoming the physical barriers and then occupying the immense country. To the south of the subcontinent was the Indian Ocean, and the country's placement right in the middle of it was critical to it being the eastern base of the empire. From the long coasts and numerous ports, the British could manage the activities of East Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. The home isles might have been terribly distant, but cities like Bombay and Calcutta weren't. While the British viceroy who governed India didn't also administer the swaths of colonies in these regions, his colony was the nerve center of movement between all of them, which made the proper working order of India vital. And that working order was no small feat either. You might look at the sheer size of India and wonder just how such a small island nation like the UK could possibly have taken over such a huge area. Well, the process of takeover had been a long one, and had as much to do with the scale of the country as anything. Prior to the era of British rule, there had never been a truly unified India. Some empires, most recently the Mughals in the early 1700s, had taken over most of the subcontinent, but had never been able to hold the thing together. The subcontinent was a land of distinct peoples, with separate customs and languages. 
They were primarily Hindus and Muslims, but also other faiths like the Sikhs and even some native Christian communities existed. It was basically like trying to unify Europe. Yeah, some guys managed to do it by force, but the differences in identity and the resources required always made it a short-term thing. And it wasn't like the British entered India with a clear-cut plan of conquest either. They started out operating simple trade missions, hoping to use India as a way station for the more enticing prospects in the East Indies. However, other Europeans had the same idea and did the same thing. Each party wanted the others out, and they all started building alliances with local kingdoms and princes with the intent to move against their competition. The British, for a variety of reasons, played this game better than the other Europeans and wound up with a standing army and an actual territorial base. Again, not totally planned, just a result of trade wars escalating beyond what anyone had imagined, and a bunch of merchants and soldiers of fortune exploiting a divided land for their benefit. Very quickly, the British, under the umbrella of the East India Company, became themselves basically princes in the politics of the subcontinent. They had alliances, rivals, and a native military that they weren't afraid to use. By the mid-1800s, the British had forced the other Europeans mostly out and had conquered half the subcontinent by themselves, and dominated the politics of the remaining disunited princes. It was this expansion that unnerved the native Indian army that served the British. And in 1857, a great mutiny took place, and much of India along the upper Ganges River was taken over by the rebels. The British administration panicked and fell apart in the affected regions, but over the course of a year, British composed themselves and sent in European troops that successfully put the revolt down. The mutiny had not spread very far, and the autonomous princes largely stayed loyal to their masters, but the British decided a drastic change in government was in order. The East India Company was disbanded, and the colony came under the direct administration of the government, which established the Raj. It would encompass all India and exerted a new measure of centralized control. It was from this point that systems of rule were put in place that would hold for the rest of the UK's time in India. Notable is that the princes were held up and rewarded for their loyalty in the new governance by keeping their autonomy, and a small but important change was a rule being made that the princes could adopt an heir if they were childless. That might not seem like a big deal, but the arrangement before was that if a dynasty failed, the British would take over that dominion. It was one of these annexations that actually helped spark the mutiny. This move was important as the British signaled to the princes that they were going to be permanent partners and weren't just clients to be used and disposed of. They were perceived by the British as being too disunited to be a threat and also a handy source of stability as any social disruptions would threaten the local prince first and foremost so they could be counted upon to maintain the status quo. The British also started being more choosy about who they brought into the Indian army. They started drafting soldiers from smaller groups, like the Sikhs, who lived more towards the periphery of the Raj, and who didn't have strong links with the bulk of the population. This was the old divide-and-rule strategy the British employed elsewhere to great effect. Find a minority that had been marginalized, raise them up to enforce British rule on peoples they had no attachment to, and then rest a bit easier, as this new group depended on their colonizers to keep their new privileged status. The UK also started deploying far more white soldiers to India as well, and their proportion would remain significant to ensure the army's loyalty. This would also expose a lot of Britons to a land they would otherwise know nothing about, and also expose the Indians 
to the sight of overlords that might never have been seen. That last bit brings up another new tactic employed by the UK in ruling India, taking a more hands-off approach to administration. This at least was consistent to how the UK governed itself at the time, with the freedom of commerce being paramount. It also signaled that the British would abandon old policies aimed at changing society in India to better match what you would find in Europe. Sure, business at the highest levels was conducted in English and European manners were the norm, but for the overwhelmingly vast majority of the very populous land, life would go on just as it had since time immemorial. The menagerie of conquered peoples would, for a long time, not really notice they had been conquered by foreigners. It just didn't impact how they lived their lives. Modernity, though, would slowly change that. India was a productive country with a big population base, both traits which begged to be exploited by the Europeans. For just one example, Indian cotton helped feed manufactories in Manchester, which in turn sent the garments back to India for sale. But that commerce only affected a band of easily accessible locations in the Raj. Markets and business opportunities had to be grown, and that meant transportation, uh, specifically railroads. Thousands of miles of track were laid down across India, which connected heretofore isolated regions. It would be an understatement to call it a mixed blessing, though, as the purpose of the railroads was not to connect the country in a way beneficial to the local communities, but rather to connect new sources of labor and resources with the regional entrepots. There was no central planning, and the railways and roads were built according to local opportunities and not as a national network. The interest of the, of the developers was not in coexisting with the local economy, but to redirect it towards what the greater market desired. Where many communities would focus on producing goods at, at a subsistence level, the sudden connection to distant markets meant that pressure was exerted on them to have them switch to producing what was profitable, while things like, oh, say, food could be supplemented from other areas. The encouraged agricultural goods in question were usually cotton and jute which worked fine as long as there weren't any disruptions to the supply chains that kept everything in a balance. Like, oh, you know, say a severe drought, for example. Which leads me to a little aside about the climate of India. Much of the country depended on seasonal monsoons to bring in the primary rainfall that farmers would enjoy for the year. Once the season got going, there would be a months-long deluge, and while that doesn't sound terribly pleasant, it meant that the land would enjoy more than enough rainfall to produce a bumper crop. A little problem, though, is that sometimes the monsoon wouldn't come in. The land would just stay mostly dry for the year. Sometimes, not commonly, but sometimes, the monsoon wouldn't come in for multiple years. Now, one missed monsoon would be a cause of stress and concern for a community, but a well-managed one would have some supplies stockpiled for such an occurrence. The multi-year ones were disastrous regardless, but again, rarer. Funny story, though, is that the demands of the market didn't take this occurrence into consideration. So, you have communities importing more food so they can grow or produce more immediately profitable goods for sale instead of what they needed to get by. So, when the monsoon failed, the food exporters had to cut their shipments, and the communities who relied on those shipments suddenly didn't have a food supply. A reoccurring feature of British India would be famines, which, while they certainly had occurred before, would be considerably worse in their effects than in previous generations, all because global demand needed those cash crops. This didn't go unnoticed, though, by authorities, and steps were taken to try and mitigate these disasters. Wells and pumps were installed, so farmland could produce even during a drought. 
Irrigation became a matter of public expenditure on the part of the Raj government. This was especially the case in the north of the country, where the Great Ganges and Indus rivers offered ample water supplies. Railways were directed to ship relief to stricken areas. In due course, the impact of the famines was reduced, though never went away entirely. It was also a sign that turning India into a productive colony was not going to be without its share of misery. And, of course, the idea of simply not focusing so much on cash crops and allowing communities a degree of self-sufficiency was not considered. There was simply too much money to be made. But all those problems didn't stop the British from making every effort at integrating it into their imperial network. And the railways and agricultural investments were merely the start. In several parts of India, there started growing an industrial economy. Granted, this was of a basic sort designed to assist with resource extraction, like jute mills to process that crop, and steel mills to provide material for the railroads. But it was a start. Many of these enterprises, especially in northeastern India until World War I, were owned and operated by British who had come to India to make their fortunes. However, elsewhere in the country, the new factories and mills were dominated by actual Indian businessmen, and even in some cases a partnership of Indians and Europeans. This created not only an emerging Indian business class, but also an urban working class that would be familiar to Europeans. And it's in these decades before World War I that Indian society saw changes that would have massive consequences for its future development. The emergence of Indians in control of large-scale commerce was not seen as a threat by the British authorities. Quite the opposite. Since the rebellion in 1857, they had cast about the country looking for partners and allies to develop and control India, recognizing that there would never be enough Britons available to do that on their own. The idea was to make British interests the interests of the controlling classes in Indian society. This policy, by and large, worked in the pre-World War I days. Many Indian businessmen took their chance at opportunity within the British Empire and bought into the imperial system. As a result of this trend, there happened to be a far-ranging Indian diaspora across the British colonies. This was most visible in the great arc of territories in the Indian Ocean area, but Indian businessmen went as far afield as the Caribbean and even started sending their kids for schooling in the UK proper. A traditional British education for the well-off was encouraged. This also meant that Indians were co-opted into the governance of the Raj as well. Extending communication and development meant there were always more places that needed to be administered properly. This participation belied, though, growing divisions within the greater society of India, however. India was still overwhelmingly agricultural in terms of employment, but much of the economic advancements and attention were being diverted to the newer industries. These newer industries themselves demanded increased technical skills, which, while not exactly needing a college education, was still a world apart from non-mechanized agriculture. And while the well-off saw to it their children received a good education, their prosperity did not go unnoticed by the less prosperous around them. And for many, education was a way to break out of poverty and servitude. This created an explosion of applicants to universities, which firstly could not be handled by the existing institutions, and secondly, those institutions were not equipped to teach students with only rudimentary English skills and a lack of familiarity with European curricula. In many regions, the rates of college dropouts easily exceeded or at least approached half of all students. All this had not been foreseen by the British, as now you had a demographic of young men, frustrated in getting a degree but still at least partially educated, 
scrambling over each other trying to get a stable government gig. The Raj's bureaucracy was always expanding, but it wasn't expanding that fast, and many were left out. I talked earlier about one of the tactics employed by the British to keep the populace compliant was to keep their presence as light and unnoticed as possible. Well, these educated and partially educated men, who found it hard to find that prestigious employment they so craved, were painfully aware of their status as the colonized. And while their objectives weren't anti-British per se, they still wanted to get in on the ruling regime. Their grievances were centered on their place within the order the Raj had created. Socially conscious and concentrated in the main population centers, these guys would become the core of organized Indian politics within the Raj. Another issue bedeviling India was an exploding population. By 1880, the population was around 250 million. By the end of World War I, it had expanded to 316 million. Unfortunately, available food supplies did not keep pace with this expansion, and even imports from acquisitions like Burma were insufficient. There simply wasn't enough arable land to feed the population. And remember that India was still overwhelmingly agrarian. If there was a shortage of workable land, that meant people would have to turn elsewhere for employment. This meant the cities, which over time absorbed what became an increasingly desperate underclass looking for work. I talked about education earlier, and you might have picked up on it primarily being the domain of the well-off or well-off adjacent. For most of the population, it simply wasn't a possibility as the state lacked the resources to provide for them. Dislocation and uncertainty became the order of the day before World War I. Before the British, and especially before the modern methods of exploitation, Indian society had rested on a kind of equilibrium. It, in and of itself, was not terribly fair, what with the continued oppression of women and a rather severe caste system, but it was stable and sustaining. The expansion of commerce and the increasing reach of the Raj started changing that. Native Hindus made up the majority of India's population, even taking into account regions that would become Pakistan and Bangladesh. Even among the collaborating segments of the upper crust, there started to be a revitalization of a distinctly Hindu identity. This was caused not just by foreign rule, but by the inroads being made by Christianity. Now, there had been for centuries Indian Christian communities, founded by ancient evangelists before the rise of Islam cut off contact with Christendom. They had found their place and were an integrated part of Indian life. The British brought their own evangelists, and they did not seek an integrated place in Indian life. Now, the conversions were few, but they provoked a Hindu backlash that saw the appearance of a distinctly Hindu nationalist line of thought, which in turn provoked questions about how suitable the British were in governing India. This nationalist sentiment alarmed the Muslim minority as well, as suddenly their neighbors were loudly rushing to defend a distinctly Hindu identity. These alarms were only increased as Hindu businessmen and landholders started working together and watching out for each other's interests based on their shared identity which served as an uncomfortable reminder to the Muslims that while the two groups had been neighbors in good standing for a long time, they themselves were definitely not Hindus and not part of the club. So they started organizing among their own community, looking out for their own particular interests. This response to foreign rule set off a tragic division that would just keep on growing from here until India was partitioned upon its independence. That isn't to say there was a rapid swing towards demanding independence, quite the contrary. India, as a concept, had always been a geographical one, and it was going to take a lot of soul-searching and debate before even a sketch of a consensus was reached. And that problem still hasn't fully resolved itself to this day in many ways. 
The British were keen on maintaining the Raj as a collection of regions and peoples, which the Indians found hard at first to disagree with. The Raj was an established and mostly workable system, and there wasn't much to go back to unless they wanted to return to the old feuding principalities. But the European educations that the Indians so valued taught them many very interesting lessons about statehood, personhood, and nationality. In 1900, the Raj government moved to start banning some European books as they picked up on the spread of ideas, but it was way too late to curb that. A massive step was taken in 1885 when the Indian National Congress, or just the Congress as I'll be referring to it, was founded. This wasn't a political party as we know it. There really wasn't any formal organization of the group, and people were free to come and go. Which initially wasn't that big of an issue, as there weren't any elected positions as yet within the colonial system to organize for. It was more of a protest group to push grievances on behalf of the connected and influential in India. Not that even those efforts were always coherent, though, as their grievances were as diverse as the Indians themselves. And with this being the first organized attempt at an all-India movement, there were plenty of divisions that had to be reconciled. One advantage, though, was recognition among many Indians that if things were going to change, then they would have to speak as a unified voice. The lack of a formal organization helped, too, as groups could freely push their agenda without getting stymied by a party organization. Which might sound like a recipe for chaos, and it occasionally was, but it also made the group a welcoming and flexible one. The only rule followed was that the Congress would focus its efforts on national issues and not get involved with local politics. By the time of World War I, the Congress had firmly established itself as the main native voice in Indian politics. It held no formal role in government and had no sanction from the Raj, but its members were individually influential, and so they had the ear of the British administration. There was a snag, though. The Congress was an overwhelmingly Hindu body. This was not by deliberate design, but a result of divisions that had already become entrenched. In areas of Hindu predominance, Muslims were usually subordinate, workers in the factories, or at least customers of Hindu-dominated commerce. These Muslims were not terribly inclined to encourage further advancement of Hindu interests. In areas where Muslims predominated, there was that sensitivity towards Hindu nationalism that made them turn away. Another division was in education. Muslims were less enthusiastic about embracing the Western educations that the Hindus pursued, and as a result, weren't as exposed to the same ideas regarding nationhood. While the Muslims certainly organized among themselves, it was a more reactive process focused on not falling behind the Hindus in influence at the national level. It was only in 1906, 11 years after the Congress was established, that the Muslim League was formed. Its progress was hampered by divisions similar to the Congress, and exacerbated by trying to unite a minority religious group that was spread across the country. But it would persist and form the second pillar of the independence movement once it got going. So, how about the British authorities, then? What did they make of all this? They were not immediately perturbed. After all, many of the Congress members were elites that had benefited greatly from the regime. By the time authorities realized the nationalistic dangers, it was already too late to reverse course. The original policy of keeping that light touch had fallen apart in the face of economic development, an irony in that the demands of colonial exploitation created the conditions of social consciousness that aroused opposition. The very centrality of India to the British Empire also meant that the disruptions of economic development could not be slowed. India was different from other colonies in that its large army was supported not by the UK proper, but by the Raj itself. It already used its own currency, the rupee, as part of its own system of finance. The balance sheet of the Raj was separate from that of the UK's, 
or technically at least, since the Raj was still very, very much a subject that still followed the orders of London. Which would cause problems down the road, as the home isles occasionally use India as an additional piggy bank, especially during World War I. That and the use of the Indian army as a colonial tool elsewhere in the empire, again, at the expense of the Raj treasury, and not the one in London, was a source of concern. Humiliations, like the defeats in Afghanistan during the later 1800s, might be politically costly in Britain, but they were economic burdens that the Indian elites did not ask for. And as India became more developed, the desire of the British viceroys to implement a more centralized rule just made it more obvious how outsiders were having a disproportionate impact on everyday lives. And that will lead us into India on the brink of World War I. Next week, we'll have a brief overview of the war years, and more importantly, the effect of the war on the relationship between the British and Indians. Just a little word of advice. Sending a million of your own men to die in the trenches does not boost your credibility as an authority figure. I'll see you next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.